0: Matthew 13, 10-17 uh, and verses 34-35 to 35 are our texts today. Let's um, pray together. Ask the Lord to help us. Father in heaven, we uh, come this morning and I pray that as we sang at the very beginning of this service, that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord, because we want to see you. You have given us your word for that very purpose, that we could hear the Word, read the Word, study the Word, and then by an encounter with the Spirit of God have our minds and hearts illumined. So when you use your Word today and when we see it and see you more clearly, remind us that that is you being gracious to us and that today we listen not just to the words of a person or read them in a printed book, we are listening to the very words of God And so we pray that that would be our our orientation today. And Lord, I pray for some here who week after week, Sunday after Sunday, listen and leave and do nothing, and they presume upon your grace. And I pray today that you, Holy Spirit, would bring that to an end, and that today might be the day of genuine conversion. Today might be the day when hardened hearts are no longer hardened. So God, I pray you draw people to yourself. Give us grace for passages that are hard and in tension. And remind us today that you are God and we are not. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 13 opens with a scene of Jesus in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and a multitude of people gathered on a sloping shoreline as he begins to teach them. This is somewhat of a familiar scene like we saw in Matthew chapter 5 except Jesus was on the mountaintop and he was, had people below him when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 13 is the third of five different discourses. And while the person Jesus may be the same person and the environment may be similar, the content of his discourse couldn't be any more different. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount was an in-your-face, get-real um, this is a hard message, I'm going to be direct. That's the tone. But Matthew 13 is more cryptic. It's more opaque. Jesus, in Matthew 5, used direct teaching. You have heard that it was said at all, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and in this he says, that the kingdom of heaven is like a, a field with weeds in it. And so Jesus begins this, kind of new era of his ministry with speaking in in ways that often leave people wondering, what exactly is he saying? In fact, the parables that Jesus uses, and in this case, the parable of the sower in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 13 is apparently so opaque that his disciples come to him and they say to him, why do you speak in parables? Apparently they must have Watch the crowds as Jesus was speaking, and the people, as they heard his parable, were like, what? Maybe they saw his, the faces of the crowd, and they're looking at each other, and they're wondering, what is he saying? Or, or maybe they, they themselves are scratching their heads as to why does Jesus use this method of teaching? Why not go back to what he was doing before with clear, direct, didactic teaching? We don't know all the reasons as to why Jesus is talking this way, but one thing is clear. Jesus and his message are puzzling. Or to put it another way, Jesus and his teaching are an enigma. Do you know what an enigma is? An enigma is a puzzle. It's a a confusing situation, a a person that doesn't make sense, a saying that you look at it and you're just like, what? Huh? Huh? It's something that's mysterious, something that's complicated, something that often has a hidden meaning, often is far more than what it appears, and it's something that cannot be solved or cracked or discovered casually. It's the language of a code, if you will. For those of you who are World War II aficionados, you will know that the Germans successfully used an encoding device to communicate to their troops on the front line, and in order to crack that code, the Allied forces had to grab this box that was used to interpret messages, and the Germans called this device the Wehrmacht Enigma. This box that encoded words... And it was a puzzle. And it was meant to be that way. So, Jesus and His teaching are an enigma. He's speaking in code, and He's doing this by design. Jesus is not often understood by those who hear Him. And and He talks in ways that at times are really frustrating to people. And in fact, this section is designed for some to create an aha moment where they go, Oh, I know what He's saying. And others... The parables are designed to create this moment where they go This ticks me off I think he's talking about me. Did you hear what he said? He's not talking about you. Yes, he's talking about me In fact, the disciples said to jesus one time after an encounter with the pharisees. Don't you know that you offended them? And jesus said to his disciples about the pharisees who cares if I offended them They're blind guides blind leading the blind. Oh to be able to say that about people, huh? But you can't because you're not jesus nor can I I But all of this is part of Jesus' plan in revealing himself. He uses parables by divine design. There's an intentionality here. And Matthew records this particular section of Scripture right where he does for some very important reasons. I want to remind you that the book of Matthew is not intended to be a biography of Jesus. Matthew has a point. This gospel, friends, is a theological work. It uses the life and works of Jesus, but make no mistake about it, Matthew has a point. And his point from the very beginning to the very end is this, that Jesus is the Messiah and don't you dare miss him again. The point is, is that he came once... And don't miss him again. So Matthew then takes his words, his life, his manner, his tone, and he communicates the essence of who Jesus is in order to write a convincing account of the life in Christ so that you would come into submission under his lordship. Now, this is our fifth section in the book of Matthew. This is the 32nd message for those of you who are keeping count, uh, hopefully for good reason, not for bad, but there's... a uh, Five sections that we've already looked at. Let me just kind of give you a 30,000-foot overview. Chapters 1 to 4 was the section called He's the One, where Matthew announced and introduced Jesus as Messiah. This, he's the One, He's the Messiah, some of you missed Him. Then chapters 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out His penetrating and demanding ethic. That series was called Get Real. And then in chapters 8 to 10, we saw the first miracles of Jesus. We saw him heal people, and we saw this convincing portrayal of his authority as the Son of God, and that was the call to follow him. And then we've just finished chapters 11 to 12, which were portraits of Jesus, where Jesus begins to paint a picture of who he is, but the problem is is that people in the audience say to themselves, well, we know what the Messiah is like, and you're not him. And so, each of them create their own portrait of what Jesus should be and what he's like. And Jesus is the only one who has the right or the authority to define the boundaries of what he should be like. And then when people reject him, or call his works the works of the devil, he warns them that this is the unforgivable sin. Or when his family doesn't understand him and they walk away, or when people don't want to make a decision and out of their hearts comes all sorts of wicked things because of the overflow of what's going on in their soul, what we've seen in, in Matthew 12 is this growing opposition and this growing refusal to accept Christ for who He is. So now we move into chapter 13 through 17, and this section of Scripture is filled with parables. The Gospel of Matthew, this section has more parables in it than any other section in the Gospel, and it's filled with confusing statements, interesting parables, increasing opposition, and at times just flat-out outright rejection. And so what you're going to see here is that Jesus is truly an enigma. He's puzzling. At times he doesn't make sense. You kind of walk away from him going, why did you say that? In fact, if you walk away from this message completely today, like, oh, I get all of this, then you've missed it. In fact, I would tell you, the deeper you go into the gospel and the deeper you go into the understanding of who God is, the wider the forest becomes. And the more you walk away going, I thought I understood this, but I'm not sure I really do now. That Jesus grows in his mystery the more that you understand him. And that, my friends, is by divine design. God will be mastered by no one. There will always be mystery. There will always be awe. There will always be an enigma when it comes to Emmanuel. So, we, we're going to skip over some verses, verses 1 to 9 for this week. We'll come back to them next week. Uh, before we get into three different weeks on the parables, I wanted to do a bit of an introduction into the parables so you understand how a parable functions, how to think about it, how to interpret it, and why Jesus would even talk this way before we jump in to try and understand them. So, next week is a really important parable, the parable of the soils, about who really believes. So you don't want to miss this text next week, I promise you. But... For this week, we need to examine the subject generally about parables and try and help you understand them. Why does Jesus talk this way and how should we think about it? If parables are so important, what are they and how do we interpret them? Let me first give you a definition. So a parable would be this. A parable would be a method of teaching where someone places something alongside something else. So you've got a a doctrine, an idea, a concept, and then you place something alongside of it, usually something common to natural life, for the purpose of comparison, so that you can make a spiritual lesson clear. Well, let me say it a little more simply. You could think of a parable as a story or an illustration with a familiar or common element, something that people connect with. They understand it. They're like, oh, I know weeds. I know soil. I know mustard seed. I I get that. And takes that and then connects it to a spiritual lesson in order to drive home a point. And Jesus always has a point that he wants to make with the parable. But he'll use different examples and even different forms of a parable. So sometimes there's an analogy, sometimes a simile, sometimes a metaphor, Sometimes there's a story, a complicated illustration, if you will. For example, um, sometimes he'll use a good story, like the Good Samaritan. Sometimes he'll use an example from nature, like weeds. Sometimes he'll use a simple comparison, like the Kingdom of Heaven, is like a mustard seed. Sometimes he uses a complicated analogy, like we'll look at last week with the parable of the four soils. So Jesus uses different types of parables but his his point is always to drive home a spiritual lesson now that spiritual lesson always has Two purposes and so let me give you some additional things as to what parables do in terms of their function Parables are a double-edged sword And god has designed them to be that way on the one hand. They are designed to reveal truth to believers In other words, if you understand who jesus is and you get the kingdom If you understand the realm of his reign, and you understand the ethic of his reign, then when you see a parable and you hear it, you go, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about this. And for you, the parable ends up revealing truth. And yet, interestingly, parables don't just serve as this purpose alone. They're not just illustrations, like you would think of a sermon illustration, They actually have another side to them. At times, it almost seems as though this other side of the parable would contradict this revealing truth piece. Because parables also have this purpose of hiding truth. So, to those who understand the kingdom, to those who get the kingdom, a parable becomes a joyful expression of a truth realized. But for those who don't get the kingdom, to those who don't understand who Jesus is, and to those who have rejected him, to those who say, no, 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 you're not the Messiah, parables tick people off. Parables actually serve to create distance between them and Jesus. Parables become a fulcrum and people begin to walk away and say, that's ridiculous. Parables tend to make people angry. Now, we're so far removed from some of the stories and the context of what's going on that we often miss this, but parables are a dividing line, a two-edged sword. Let me show you this in two other accounts. Look at Luke chapter 8 and verse 10. We're going to look at a number of passages this morning because, candidly, I'm going to say some things in this text and read to you some passages that are hard. As I was talking with a young man after the service, I said to him, you know, if that wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. Because that shows me a side of God's justice that is a bit uncomfortable. So when, let me say this, so when tension comes in your heart with what you're reading, before you either A, try and discount it, or B, try and figure it out, try this. Just let the truth be what it is for a moment. And just let it be and don't touch it and just be still and know that he is God. There are some things written for us in the Bible that are meant not for us to fully figure out so we can grab a hold of them and say, oh, I got this. There are some things that are in the Bible for us to go, I don't even have a category for that. And I think that's what heaven is going to be like for all of eternity. Beauty and awe and marvel and wonder. So Luke 8, verse 10. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. They ask him, why do you speak in parables? Here's his answer. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables. Here's the purpose. So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. All right, now look at Mark chapter 4 and verse 11. This is the text in particular that the young man was asking me about this morning, and this is the one that I said. If this wasn't in the Bible. I, I wouldn't believe it, but it is. And there's moments, candidly, I wish texts like this weren't in the Bible. It'd make my job a lot easier. But yet, it would make God less majestic. So Mark 4, verse 11. Here's what he says. Again, the disciples come to him. Same story um, from Mark and Luke that we have in Matthew. The disciples come. Why are you speaking parables? Jesus answers. Here's what he says. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. There's the double-edged sword. For you, it reveals the kingdom. It shows you the secrets. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand. And here's the phrase that just is hard to hear. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. So... Just let those be where they are for now. Clearly then, beloved, parables are a double-edged sword and the purpose is radically different in how a person receives the parable and how they hear the lesson and it all depends on what the person has done with Christ and his kingdom. In other words parables are intended to be helpful to people who are christ followers and they are intended to be shocking and offensive for people who have not dealt with christ they're intended to be parables where you walk away going he's talking about me he he said that story because he's reading my mail he's talking about me and the disciples would say oh don't you know the beauty of what he means Another important thing to know about the parables is that they're intended to call for a personal response. So more than like Christian Aesop fables with nice moral lessons, these are designed to strike at the heart and to call for action. So Jesus is calling for people to do something, based upon these parables, and in order to know what he's calling the people to do, you have to understand the context in which first he says the parable, so whenever you read the parable, be sure you look before and after, and you also need to know the dynamics of the symbolism that he uses, because he uses these metaphors, he uses these illustrations, and it's designed to create an emotional response. And if you felt what they felt when he used particular analogies, then you would get the full meaning of what's going on here. Such that parables, finally here, are meant to be self-evident. They're meant to be emotional. It's meant that when you go through the parable, at the end, you either get it or you don't, and it should be obvious. It's, it's like a joke. Someone tells you a joke. You ever been in this scenario? And everyone is laughing, and you're like, what, what's, what's so funny? And then someone explains it to you, you feel like the big loser in the room, you're like, I I don't get it. And then someone explains it to you, and then you're like, "Eh." it's not as funny, right? Because they had to explain it to you. You're like, okay, well, I don't know. So so that's the point. It's better, and it it loses its punch if someone has to go to you, okay, so here's what it really means, and here's why that's funny. The, The parables are designed to be, bam, here's the meaning. A classic example of this would be the parable of the Good Samaritan. Matthew doesn't have that parable in it. Luke does. And let me just use this as the illustration to make this hopefully clear. Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan in response to an arrogant request from a self-justifying lawyer to explain to him who his neighbor is. So after Jesus explains what it means to keep the law with loving your neighbor as yourself, the lawyer then asks an arrogant question, well, who's my neighbor? As if he's got Jesus trapped. Who's my neighbor? Define it for me. Tell me who is my neighbor. And so Jesus, sensing his arrogance, then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Our problem is we don't feel what he would have felt in the story. Because we're not connected to a priest. We're not connected to a Levite. We don't, we don't feel what you would feel about a Good Samaritan. So I found a more contemporary example this week. Let me read it to you and see if it helps. It helped me. A family of disheveled, unkept individuals was stranded by the side of a major road on a Sunday morning. They were in obvious distress. The mother was sitting on a tattered suitcase, hair uncombed, clothes in disarray with a glazed look to her eyes, holding a smelly, poorly clad, crying baby. The father was unshaved, dressed in coveralls. The look of despair was all over his face as he tried to corral two other youngsters. Beside them was a run-down old car that had obviously just given up the ghost. Down the road came a car driven by a local bishop. He was on his way to church. And though the father of the family waved frantically, the bishop could not hold up his parishioners, so he acted as if he didn't see them. Soon came another car. Again, the father waved furiously, but the car was driven by the president of the local Kiwanis club, and he was late for a statewide meeting of Kiwanis presidents in a nearby city. He too acted as if he didn't see them. He kept his eyes straight on the road ahead of him. The next car that came was driven by an outspoken local atheist who had never been to church in his life. And when he saw the family's distress, he took them into his car, and after inquiring to their need, he took them to a local motel where he paid for a week's lodging while the father found work. He also paid for the father to rent a car so he could look for the work, and he gave the mother cash for food and new clothes. And if Jesus was saying this parable, he would then ask this question, who, class, proved to be the neighbor? And your answer would have to be the atheist he would make you say the atheist and everything within you would go no no and then he would say go and do likewise go and be like the atheist well that's a cold cock from a spiritual perspective go and be like the atheist. So you get the sense of why these parables were so controversial. As a follower of Jesus, you went, well, exactly, amen, let's go and be like the atheist. And those who rejected Christ would be like, did you hear what he said? He said, go be like the atheist. Hmm. So when we start studying parables, it's important to know something about the immediate situation, to try and feel what they would have felt as best as we can so we understand the comparisons. But the two most important things for you to remember as we approach the study of parables is this, is that parables call for an emotional response. Think, be like the atheist. And parables are received differently depending on your view of Jesus. Do you hear, be like, or do you hear atheist? What do you hear? And that's what parables are designed to do. It's a double-edged sword, reveals truth for one, hides truth from another. So now, with that as the background, the question then is, why would Jesus talk this way? Why does he use cryptic parables? Why doesn't he just speak clearly, plainly, and directly? I think in this passage, the disciples ask him that question, and Jesus answers them, and I think he gives them and us at least four reasons why he speaks this way. The first reason we find in verse 11. Verse 10 says, why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11, Jesus answers, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So let's cue in first on that little phrase, secrets of the kingdom. I think one of the things that happens here is Jesus speaks in parable form in order to highlight the mystery of the kingdom. What what is Jesus talking about, the mystery of the kingdom? Well, Well, first, what he's doing in these parables is trying to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. In fact, look how often in chapter 13, just let your eye run to the following verses. Look at verse 24. And notice that he says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then, look at verse... Uh, 31. He told another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Or verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Or verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. Or verse 40, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. What's going on here? Well, what's happening is that Jesus is trying to explain what the nature of the kingdom is. And what the nature of true obedience is, and the point is, is that this kingdom of heaven, whatever it is, isn't obvious. It's not plain. It's not clear. Which is why Jesus has to keep saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like this. He's trying to help them understand what the kingdom of heaven is because they don't see it. And he knows what you and I all experience, that we, as those who are religious, tend to define the kingdom in wacky terms. And before you know it, we're just like the people making a beeline to church, passing by hurting people, and we forget that the kingdom of heaven is not just getting to church. We make wacky things out of it. So Jesus is trying to help us understand what the kingdom is like. So what, what kingdom is he describing here? Well, my view is that Jesus is talking about what should be happening now as a foretaste of what will ultimately happen when he reigns and rules on the earth. A future kingdom. So I, I don't think that the kingdom is now. But I do think there's a, a wedding of the appetite. I I do think that there is an already but not yet element to this kingdom, that a kingdom is surely coming, but even now Jesus is showing us how to live out what he prayed in Matthew 5, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think every once in a while we get a little foretaste of what that is like when our lives and our teaching lock into the ethic of how Jesus would want us to live if he was here. For instance, I just had a taste of that yesterday as my family was serving in the Brookside neighborhood. We were on a team, about 30 people, and our task was to take a block or a street, about two blocks long, and go through and clean up houses, abandoned houses, rental houses that weren't taken care of. I mean, in some cases, the grass was, a, was two feet high. We had to go through a weed whacker and try and knock it down before we could even go mow it. It was a beautiful thing to see 40 people from College Park descend like worker bees in this house. And they would mow the grass. And it was like you could put music around the house when you first saw it. It was like... And then when they left, it was like... I mean, it was just beautiful. And what would happen is it was like we brought in the kingdom. And while we're going through this process, I'm reminding that Jesus called us to subdue the earth. And that the reason that there's weeds and crabgrass and the reason why there's dandelions and prickly bushes that give you slivers in your fingers is because of the problem of the fall. And what we're literally doing is we're beating back the effects of the fall and a neighbor comes out and says, thank you so much for mowing that grass. That's the kingdom. It's not all of the kingdom, but it's a taste. And it's also a reminder that while we're doing this, four houses down, there were four Jehovah's Witness couples going door to door. So we're doing our stuff on their side, they're doing their stuff on their side, and I'm thinking, you know what? This is a war. This is a war. Let's go bring our lawnmowers by them. <laughs> we didn't do that, but I had a thought. And on a more serious note, a sober note, in today's indie star, there was a young boy, nine years old, Tyrese Morris. 3 o'clock in the morning, only 5 to 6 hours before we got there, lived in that neighborhood, 16-year-old brother was playing with a handgun at 3 a.m. and accidentally shot his younger brother in the head and he died. And Tyrese Morris, you know how we found out about that? We knew about that before the Indy started because one of our workers was going door-to-door visiting kids in our CEF after-school Bible clubs. And guess who was in our Bible clubs? Tyrese was. Guess who heard the gospel? Tyrese did. So we're we're in the middle of a zone where we're trying to bring in a taste of the kingdom. And Jesus gives us parables to help us know what this kingdom is like so that we in our religiosity don't miss what the essence of the ethics should be of how to be Christ's followers. And parables help us in that regard. Secondly, he uses parables to emphasize that this kingdom is mysterious in other words it's not obvious the esv renders the word as secret to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom that is the greek word mysterion and paul loves this word in the new testament he uses it over and over for the unfolding plan of god the way in which god graciously moves in time and space and history but Paul and the other New Testament writers would tell you the movement of God is a mystery and it's not obvious to sinful people. Listen to Romans 16.25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that there's a mystery of the manifold grace of God and now God has disclosed it. He's made it evident. And how did that happen? It happened through the prophetic writings And God's purposes. So, what you need to understand is that this mystery belongs to God. And mark this down in your heads. The only reason that those secrets are known is because God has revealed them. You wouldn't know about sin. You wouldn't know about righteousness. You wouldn't know about heaven and hell if God didn't, beautifully so, reveal them to us in His Word. You wouldn't come to that realization. No one is figuring this stuff out. God is revealing secret things about the kingdom that no one would know unless God intervened. And so the kingdom is mysterious, and so parables fit this mysterious nature very well. Now there's a second reason. The second reason for parables is to exalt the sovereignty of God. This, I think, is probably the most important point of all four, and I think is at the heart of what Jesus is driving at, and also, frankly, creates some of the most significant tension for us. And I think, again, beloved, this is by design. He indicates that the only reasons why the disciples understand the parables is because they have been given that. By God. Look again at verse 11. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. So the difference between those who know and those who don't know is the difference between those who have been given something from God to understand the parable. So the point there is that the purpose of parables is to reveal again that the mystery of who Jesus is and what the kingdom is all about is not generally understood. It's not just something that everybody understands. Rather, the Bible tells us, and this is a really critical piece so that you understand other writings in the New Testament, from a biblical framework, the natural and sinful orientation of the human heart is darkened, spiritually dead, And unless God intervenes, men and women in their natural sinful state will miss the mystery of God unless He storms their heart and intervenes in their lives. So it's not as though the human heart is a blank slate, it's not as though the human heart is neutral. It's not as though the human heart is simply passive or is simply there. No, the Bible tells us that the human heart is categorically set against God, darkened and in rebellion against Him. So it's that God has to intervene. Let me give you some other examples of this. Peter, in Matthew 16, 17. Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then says this. This is Jesus' words to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, did Peter say it? Yes. Did he mean it? Yes. Did he believe it? Yes. Did he think it? Yes. But where did it come from? From Peter? No. From the Father. That the ultimate source, the ultimate antecedent, of anything that comes from a person is the goodness and grace of God. He's the ground of everything, and what that does is it eliminates all boasting at the cross. For you to say, I got myself here. Did you believe? Yes, you did. Did you repent? Yes, you did. Did you have faith? Yes, you did. But did you do that alone? No. It was God, by His Spirit, who made that even possible. Next text, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. Paul says this. If you have a Bible, turn there quickly because it's a really important verse. 1 Corinthians 2.7, or look at it, read it in the notes as I go over it. Paul's talking about the the secret and the hidden, the wisdom of God. We're going to skip to verse 10 after verse 7. He says this, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit... For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Notice the role of the Spirit here. Now verse 13, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Verse 14 is a killer verse. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Unless God gifts the disciples to understand the parables, vis-a-vis understand who Christ is, they will never understand it. Now, I know that that creates a gazillion category problems and questions and tensions. I'm just saying, let that just rest. Don't resolve, don't try and figure it out. Just simply acknowledge that this is what the texts say, and there's a reason for it. Jesus is making the point that the disciples should never take pride in themselves that they can understand any of these parables. They should never look back and say, well, we get it, because we're so awesome. They're clearly going to prove they're all losers, right? But they've got one thing. They've been with Jesus. Aren't you grateful that the church is made up of losers who know that they've been with Jesus? I am. They should understand that it's only by the mercy of God that they understand anything. Or this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You can't even see it unless he's born again. Or Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says this about the disciples. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He's telling them that no one would know the truth about the kingdom unless God revealed it to them. Therefore, Jesus' kingdom is a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the world looks at this and says, you're crazy for believing in some guy who died 2,000 years ago. You're crazy. And let alone hung on a cross like a common criminal. And for those who know Christ, we see that and say, that's our hope. So Jesus is showing them while they certainly believed and while they certainly understood with their minds, they did not do this on their own, that God was behind it. And therefore, Jesus is saying here that he speaks in parables in order to highlight once again that God has sovereign purposes that he wants for us to see. Third, parables are also here to expose the hardness of heart. The next three verses are all about God's judgment. And what Jesus says here is that parables or cryptic statements are a form of God's judgment. As God just simply allows the human heart to remain darkened and to follow its self-deceived course. And by the way, if God allows the human heart to remain dark and allows it to go down its self-deceived course, that is simply justice for sin. Sometimes we have an un- biblical or a wacky view of what just or fair is because we don't understand the depths of what sin is verse 13 makes this connection jesus says this this is why i speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see hearing they do not underst- hear nor do they understand so what he's saying is the lack of par- of understanding about the parables is connected to a bigger problem of not understanding who jesus is in other words if you miss jesus you miss god So if you're here today and you're trying to figure out the claims of Christianity and you want to understand the Bible, you're like, I read it, but I don't get it. As an old preacher used to say, it's because you're reading someone else's mail, right? You need to come to faith in Christ because you can't understand God or anything in the Bible unless you first go through the authority and the Lordship of Christ and realize that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Then Jesus quotes Isaiah 6. An unbelievable passage where Isaiah and the king Uzziah dies. He sees the Lord lifted up got the seraphim. who are calling out, holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah sees that, says, woe is me. I'm, I'm done. I'm an unclean man. I live in the midst of unclean people. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. God takes a coal from a seraph, burns his lips, cleanses him, and then sends him out to preach. And then in effect says, go. And this is what's going to happen to you. No one's going to listen. No one's going to understand And what happens here is that God judges the nation by no longer opening their hearts to hear. He judges the nation by no longer opening their hearts to hear. So once again, I think what's happening here is that God wants us to tremble at the reality and the problem of our own depravity. Listen to me, we've heard this before, we talked about this when we mentioned the unforgivable sin, but it's important to remember that the effects of sin on creation are immense and total. The Bible says, Romans three ten and 11, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Without God's intervention, nobody would ever understand, no one would ever come to Him, and God, is, if God never intervened for anyone, sin would justly be punished. So what happens here is that you begin to appreciate the divine sovereignty and human responsibility paradox when you understand the full nature of the scope of sin. And then I think also what he wants us to realize is to tremble over not responding to truth that's right in front of us that we see and understand and realize that that is a gift that God gives and he's not obligated to give it in that way forever. We must remember that conviction of sin and spiritual understanding is not a human birthright. And there are some people who treat conviction and understanding as if it's a part of the Bill of Rights. I can come and listen, hear a truth, and not respond. That's okay, I'll just come next week and then I'll respond. And that is a dangerous thing to presume on the gift of God's conviction. That also means that every time you feel convicted and you feel the weight of your sin and you know how you need to repent and you see clearly from the Scriptures that you rejoice that God by His Spirit is doing that inside of your soul. The final reason is that we are to marvel at the beauty of God's grace. You see, this passage, I know, creates tension. It it, it creates unanswered questions. It creates some internal problems. You should walk away from this passage going, Wow! Or, what? Or, holy God! We end where Matthew ends us. We marvel at the beauty of God's grace. Verse 16, he says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. He says, blessed are you because your eyes see. So take all the category questions, all the unanswered problems, all the paradoxical things that you're thinking in your mind, put that aside for a moment. And Jesus says, blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your eyes because they see. That's God. Rejoice and be glad. Blessed are your eyes because they can behold And then he says, don't you know that there were others who wanted to be able to see this day? Talking about the urgency of the moment. He says, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but they never saw it. He's not referring here to hardness of heart, but rather the timing of the revelation. He's identifying for his disciples that there is a reason, there's a moment, there's a a purpose for everything that's happening, that they're part of that moment, and they ought not to miss the significance of what is happening right now. And that is where some of you are, this very moment. Do not miss the significance of what God, by His Spirit, is saying to you this very moment. Do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. Don't resist His will. Don't simply say, I can just simply take care of this whenever. You presume on the goodness and grace of God. And the fulcrum is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Is He Master, or is He simply your puppet? So you see why I've chosen the title of this series, Enigma. Because there are so many paradoxes and challenges and difficulties. So what do we do with all this? I want to remind you that there's great danger in waiting to respond to truth that's right in front of you. I want to remind you that spiritual eyesight and understanding is not a birthright. It's a gift from God. And don't you ever take credit for it. And when it happens, thank God that His mercy has been so great to you. It reminds us that spiritual progress that we've ever made is only because of invasion of God's mercy. He came and He conquered your heart. Yeah, you opened the door, but you didn't know there was a door until he told you. It reminds us that the hardness of heart is real. It reminds us that the Bible is the disclosure of God to man, but that there will always be mystery. So if you think Christianity is about figuring everything out, you're wrong. It means that you walk away going, wow. And finally... It means accepting Christ as Lord and Savior is the first and most important step because that's the key to understanding anything that isn't in, is, that is in His Word. Or let me put it this way. Jesus is the key that unlocks the mystery of God and you won't know God until you come through Christ. And that's why He talks this way so you deal with him so you can know the father so father we pray that you would help us to understand this complicated and at times troubling passage that creates tension and categories that at times don't seem to jive and fit and mix together well and Lord, I thank you that you will be mastered by no one. You can be studied by those who know you, but you will not be mastered. And just when we think we know exactly what you're like, your word comes alive in a new way and we see a new angle, a new corner. And so I pray today that my brothers and sisters would not walk away with another message, another understanding of your word and not be changed. Lord, I believe that there's people here today who you're calling to become children of yours. And that burning within the heart is a divine call for men and women to receive Christ. I pray that today they would respond. And Lord, I pray that those who have resisted your will as obedient believers, but now have grown cold, that today would be a realization of its time to return and to not presume on the goodness and kindness of their God. So, beloved, College Park, whether you're here or in worship too, is... As we just pause before I release you, would you just think and pray and ask, what is it that God has wanted to say today? And do you hear? Are you listening? You may need someone to pray with afterwards. We'll have some of our prayer team here and in worship too. And they're there just to ask God to do what only He can do in your heart. Do not resist His grace. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for being complicated and coded and at times confusing. We love you and we submit to you as Lord and Master. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today. I love you.